Hey everybody, this is Elizabeth Maxwell, the voice of Urbosa from Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and Winter Schnee from Ruby, and you are listening to Cap with Monocle. everyone this is the fifth episode of cat with monocles podcast today we have voice actress elizabeth maxwell she voices the robasa from legend of zelda breath of the wild and she's also done overlord attack on titan demon gaze 2 persona 5 and a whole lot of them but i'm sure we can talk more about that right elizabeth how are you doing <laughs> i'm wonderful Meow. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I had to work that in somewhere. No, I appreciate it. So, how is uh, Texas by chance? I mean, I've visited a few um, times, but well, it's wonderful right now. It's kind of like that beautiful, like a uh, short-lived spring that we get, where all the wildflowers are blooming and mm-hmm. it's warm, but it's not hot. Um, it's actually been really lovely, but it doesn't typically last for very long. Yeah, that's, it seems like that one that actually does hit Michigan sometime or the, somewhere in the Midwest or somewhere not south uh, kind of does that. You get about mm-hmm. a good week, and then it's pretty much done. So yeah. it's a little chilly up here in Michigan, <laughs> but it's doing okay. So you've been a fan of old, like some pretty old movies like Wizard of Oz and even uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is really cool that you're into those kind of movies. You don't see, a, I don't see too many people actually saying, Hey, I like this or I talk about it. Um, what, I, I guess, what would be the top five of your favorite, you know, I would say, I'm going to say old school movies or just retro movies or just oh, man. movies you like. That's, <laughs> that's a hard one. Yeah. I'm a sucker for, um, uh, for older movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's actually kind of funny. So I'll answer your question, I promise. But just to preface <laughs> this, um, I'm actually a huge fan of, I don't want to see it, say bad action movies, but like kind of like the 90s era action movies. And I don't know if it's just because I grew up with them or mm-hmm. I just kind of like appreciate the cheesy style. Yeah. But I watched Demolition Man last night with my boyfriend and, uh, you know, we were kind of like joking around about it and I was like, you know, but it is, it's kind of like a very specific style of acting. It almost, it's not Shakespearean by any means, but it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, it is its own style. It's its own thing. And he was like, what? So is it like stuff like this that made you want to become an actor? And I was like, I mean, not quite, but it is kind of stuff like this that made me want to go into action. Yeah. Like, uh, a lot of people know me for voiceover, but I do pursue on-camera work as well. And I very much, like, want to, uh, you know, slowly build myself um, a niche in the kind of, like, action-adventure sci-fi mm. realms of of film. Um, but uh, let's see. Top five. Um Big top, big trouble in Little China is definitely up there. Oh yeah. Um, as is Raiders of the Lost Ark, which we already mentioned. Yes. Um, I'm also. This is kind of cliche, but um, 
Princess Bride, I could watch on repeat, as yeah. well as The Labyrinth. Um, those are two <laughs> movies that never get old for no. me. Um, and what else? Uh, Monty Python, um, Search for the Holy Grail, yes. is, is another one I watch on repeat a lot. And um, I'm also a big fan of kind of like the golden era of romantic comedies, uh-huh. but I tend to like ones that are like a little less well-known than like Sleepless in Seattle. Okay. I think my two favorite ones are French Kiss, still Meg Ryan, but um, Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein, and a uh, little bit um, newer, more current, but I'm for some reason a sappy fan forever after which is kind of like the retelling of the Cinderella story with Drew Barrymore as Cinderella. She makes a perfect Cinderella. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny about about uh, about the '90s because the, when I think about the '90s, I think of like Die Hard. You know, those all those mm-hmm, trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the funny thing is I didn't really and like The Rock. I mean, there was a lot of like there were some really kind of some cheesy ones, but. Mm-hmm. There were always ones like you just like would just sit there and just watch and just, you know, you were gonna have a good time with that. Even if the acting was like a little off, or just obviously you you can pick you know poke fun of like little, you know, but um, like Trouble Little China for example. Uh, I haven't seen that oh, movie God. for so long, but then after a while, you know, you sit down and you watch it like for so long, and you're, you pick up these things you just never realized and. You end up wanting to go back and re- probably go back and watch it a few more times just to pick up on things. Um, oh man, Kurt Russell's monologues as Jack Burton in that are just my favorite, and I still think it is Kim Cattrall's best role yeah. to date. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the um, some of the other ones I've always, if it was back then when I growing up, I would always watch uh, Jim Carrey. Anything he came out with, I would watch it. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. watching him in, in in Living Color, and then yep. he transferred oh, I over. I loved in Living Color. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and then when he transferred over to the movies, you know, I would always watch those on repeat growing up, and I would always, you know, do those skits, as, you know, at school and everything. And oh yeah, I think we all imitated Ace Ventura I would in think, school, right? Right. <laughs> I would. Hopefully, I'm not the only one. Um, and even like some of the other, I mean. I didn't appreciate it as much as, you know, at a younger age, but more now, like Liar Liar, for example, that was more of a, mm-hmm. I mean, not a serious role, but compared to like Ace Ventura, that was a little bit more serious, mm-hmm. but still funny in its own way. Um, it just got a little bit more sophisticated, I yeah. think, you know? <laughs> no, good point. But those were always fun to watch back then. Um, but aside from movies, though, you've now... You had to save up to buy a Super Nintendo growing up. <laughs> yeah. How did that? So did you have to do a lot of chores to, in order to get that? Or were you able to somehow able to convince your parents to buy one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My parents, bless their hearts, believed in like earning your money. And I got an allowance. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, at that age, it was $20 a week. Oh, but like, ooh, okay. I actually really <laughs> had to work for that. Yeah. Um, I, I did like, I did the dishes every night. We cleaned the house every Saturday. So I was always responsible for the dusting and cleaning, mm-hmm. <laughs> cleaning my brother and I's bathroom. And then 
uh, cleaning my own room, of course. Oh my goodness. This, um, is, this is all coming back to me too much now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. Especially when you want something so bad and you say, if I, if I do all this stuff in five days, can I get this? And <laughs> you work your butt off just to get it. Yep. And it was frustrating too, because I totally was from one of those families where like, I did a way better job naturally than my brother did. And so like, my mom kind of like sneakily tried to give me the harder like cleaning tasks oh. knowing that I would do better at them. And then I got resentful because I had to like do more than my brother did. And he got yeah. the same amount of allowance. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I remember my brother and I went in on the Super Nintendo together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and But it like broke both of our piggy banks. Yeah. So there was like a definitive period of time. I don't remember how long it was, but like a good couple of months uh-huh. where all we could do was play um, Donkey Kong because it's the game that came with the Super Nintendo and we blew all of our money buying the Super Nintendo and then oh. we couldn't afford to buy any of the games. So it didn't, so it didn't <laughs> even come with Super Mario World. It just came with Donkey Kong Country. Yeah, I think, um, I don't remember if you were given the choice or not between, like, like Donkey Kong Country or Super Mario. I honestly don't remember. I just know we ended up with Donkey Kong Country, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic game. Oh, yeah. I actually loved that game. But after about three months on repeat, <laughs> yeah. it gets old. It does. <laughs> I remember... Um... We were, I was kind of in that same situation where we had a Sega Genesis and then all these cool games that were coming out for the Super Nintendo, like, oh, I, I want that one. Mm-hmm. And it took a, took a while for convincing to be able to get it and some chores, obviously, but I remember picking that up and I think I ended up playing my Super Nintendo a lot more my, than my Genesis. And I was a big Sonic the Hedgehog fan back then. And... But just being able to play like Super Mario World, Link to the Past, and then even games like Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy, you know, oh, three yeah. back then, you know, the, the crazy best. title. <laughs> but those the were best. always and Secret of Man. I would I would watch my brother play that all the time, and I would watch him play Final Fantasy three all the time as well. But me too. I was like, even though I owned a fifty percent share in the Super Nintendo, I was mm-hmm. often relegated to the couch. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, and I don't know about you, but I I didn't mind watching them play. It was just fun to watch. And then, you know, then you think about like today's day and age, where you know you've got Twitch and YouTube, like people will watch other people play, and I can get, I can understand why people would do that. And I don't, you know, I don't see much of a problem with that way, but, uh, but. If I, you know, watch somebody play, I would have a hard time finishing that game. Yeah. Just because you already know what happened, you know what you got to do. It's not as not as fun as it would be, you know, experiencing it yourself. But so I would never get, a, I would never actually beat Final Fantasy three because I've always watched him beat it. Really? Yeah. Oh. And I would always stop <laughs> at the same place. Which way? It was where after the. The world got just you know pretty much like torn apart, and then uh-huh, you got all uh-huh. your you know you got all your party members together, and then uh-huh. there was a spot where, as soon as you did that, you had to start grinding, like you had to grind right. every character, and that's where I stopped every time, because it was yeah. it, it took so long, just to try to get everybody ready because I knew like once you get to that last dungeon, you don't pick you know your you know your your best set, you had to have everybody ready. 
Yeah, I was never a huge fan of grinding. But I will say that Final Fantasy III is one of the few games that I did actually, like, play Mm -hmm. all the way through to the end. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, it was... Everything about it was just really fun, really good. I mean, the Purple Octopus was always fun to, to mess around with. And then... Oh, there was a quite a few. There was a lot of memories on that one. And then don't mm-hmm. get me started on Chrono Trigger. But oh man, that's my favorite game of all time. Oh yeah, so. <laughs> my favorite. I mean, favorite. You know, favorite. You know, composer, artist, and then back then Square was just you know anything they you know came out with it was just gold. So mm-hmm. I mean, having all those, I was just excited as you know, you know, kid in a candy store. So. Thinking about so going from about from going to Super Nintendo, you've done some work for you know Nintendo. Have you ever thought you would ever actually be at that point where you would actually voice for a Zelda game? No, <laughs> that was a huge surprise. I mean, a partially as as just like a an average person in the world not expecting them to add that level of voiceover, mm-hmm. um, you know, to their games, but. B, I just, I mean, never in a million years did I imagine when I was auditioning for that project that I was auditioning for the new Zelda game. Right. It was a huge shock. Um, and they didn't tell you, though. It was it was kind of, it was under wraps. They didn't really tell you. They say, hey, you know, we want you to practice this voice. And then once they approved it, they told you what it was. Yeah, it's very, um, this is not uncommon mm-hmm. with video games because they rely so heavily on, um, you know, secrecy and being able to kind of control when, uh, you know, stuff is released that, you know, I've worked in most every realm of entertainment mm-hmm. and video games by far have been the strictest with, uh, you know, secrecy and, you know, keeping things under wraps. Mm-hmm. And so it is not uncommon to receive an audition for a video game and everything is coded. So there's a code name for the game. Uh, The characters have code names. They're not usually given their real name in the game. Um, The dialogue that you audition with is often, often just written, you know, to match the tone of the character, but not with anything, you know, identifying within the dialogue. So, yeah, I mean, I had no clue that I was auditioning for a Nintendo title, Uh, even, you know, all the way through the process, the initial audition, the callback, even when I booked the role. Yeah. um, It wasn't until I literally stepped into the studio for my first recording session that I figured out what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) That has to be a little bit nerve wracking that you don't know up until the day you actually are or the, even stepping into the building to actually start recording for it. Did that change um, your you know momentum or just the process, you know, you get started on voice acting or you know, I actually like after having some time to reflect on this, I wonder if it's not intentional because you know, Nintendo is such, you know, a monolith in the game industry and Zelda is such a you know, well-known prestigious title. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if they didn't do it on purpose so that we didn't have time to psych, our, psych ourselves out, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. And especially this being the first game that actually has voiceover in their main series. 
Right. Because it's, it's almost like I didn't have time to truly freak out. Mm-hmm. Like I did a little bit when I figured it out, but it's like I'm in a booth, you know, and yeah. there is, you know, several Nintendo employees and a sound engineer and a director on the other side of the glass. And I know that I'm visible and audible. So it's like <laughs> you could only freak out so much. Right. And then you know you're on the clock and you have a job to do. So your kind of professional instincts kick in to a certain degree. And I, yeah, I don't know this for a fact, but I do kind of wonder now if that that wasn't part of their, you know, benevolent master plan. <laughs> I, I want to I think they, they would do that because with everything they announce with their directs and everything of their products, they are really quiet about it. And they try to keep it as quiet as long as they can. And mm-hmm. a lot of people speculate, try to figure out what's going on. While they may get some of it right, but they don't get all of it right. And that's mm-hmm. the fun part about what they do is you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know how they're going to do it. And when it does happen, you know, I I think a lot of people do eat it up and enjoy it to the fullest as much as they can until the mm-hmm. next thing comes out. But to, be, <laughs> but to be able to where you just came in, you know, I'm going to be in a Zelda game and mentally prepare yourself and start recording. I'd say you did a pretty darn good job. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just thinking about the pressure you would have to even start thinking about, I'm going to be in this big of a title of a game, and I'm voice acting it, and I have to start recording in just a matter of, you know, you know, minutes or hours. I'm not sure how long you had to wait. Um, would probably, I, I don't know how many voice actors would have to start thinking, mentally prepare themselves, but... Again, I mean, I think you did a great job. You're just getting it down and, you know, going forward with it. Thanks. I mean, I was lucky. We had an amazing team that we worked with. I mean, all the Nintendo people were so mm-hmm. supportive and so kind. And the director, Jamie Mortolaro, was incredibly uh, gifted with just, like, keeping us, you know, grounded and, uh, you know, giving us all the emotional context we needed, like, I mean, they really, they really provided an amazing atmosphere to, to make it so that we could thrive, mm-hmm. you know, within, within the roles. So I cannot take full credit. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's a team effort. It's not a single In, person. It's a entirely. Team yeah. Right. I mean, that's the thing. If you look a lot of, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in sports for a second because that's the only thing I can think of at the top of my head is that, you know, it's not a one person game, you know, person on a team. It's, it's everyone that makes it happen. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> now, you've done a lot of video game voices. I mean, you've done some, you know, there's some leading roles, there's been supporting roles. I mean, just to name a few, uh, like Dragon Ball's Universe 1 and 2 are, are some examples. You've done some for uh, Dark Rose Valkyrie, Demon Gaze 2. I mean, you've got quite a few in the list out of. A lot of them, a lot of them that you've worked with. What was the one you've enjoyed the most? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to beat Legend of Zelda because of a lot of different factors. From you know the the, the game itself was so beautiful and mm-hmm. such a masterpiece. Um, you know, being just like a part of that was an amazing experience. And on top of that, like, I love my character 
Like I love Urbosa so much. I have the biggest woman crush on her. <laughs> and I just think that she is the most fabulous character. I love everything about her, the way she looks, you know, her personality. Um, I love that she doesn't take herself too seriously, that she's kind of like a jokester, but she has this really beautiful, you know, kind of nurturing maternal side. Um, so, so, so definitely that, but, um, another game that I had a really amazing experience on was Gearbox's Battleborn. Oh. I played Phoebe in that game and it was one of the funniest, most creative experiences I've ever had because Gearbox gives its writers so much freedom and free reign and the writer that I worked with specifically on that game, Aaron Lindy, he was so trusting and respectful of actors. And he really believed that, you know, he provided like a skeleton, but at the end of the day, like the actors are the ones who know the characters the best. Mm -hmm. And so there was just an incredibly fun amount of improv and just joking around in the booth and really having fun kind of seeing just how far we could take these characters. Yeah. Um, like I always say, like it's a milestone for me because it's the first time I've ever been paid to burp. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that that was that was one of the most fun um, fun games I have ever worked on, and that character is still very very near and dear to my heart as well. Oh, nice! And you even worked on other ones such as Persona Five and. Mm-hmm. Even the Secret of Mana remake that was recently yeah. came out. I know um, there was that one, and then I mean, like I said, there was quite a few that you worked on. But that's interesting that uh, one that you like the most, or at least aside from Zelda: Breath of the Wild, is a game that you got paid a burp. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also just you know, a lot of times as voice actors, we are working with. Um, dubbing performances mm-hmm. uh which is definitely you know its own skill set it's it's difficult and fulfilling in its own way but um there is a a different level of creative freedom that comes from doing prelay mm-hmm. which is where you're the first person to record the character so the um the mouse are animated to you yeah. instead of you having to match the mouse and uh and yeah battleborn was was one of those where there were no constraints yeah. you know like we could just go wild and do whatever we wanted and the animators would just deal with it <laughs> that's, that's actually kind of at least a sigh of relief i would imagine compared to having to like you said dove voices or something that was coming from out of the country and have to work with that animation already set up. Mm-hmm. Now, let's see here. Now, you've done a, another, <laughs> quite a bit of list of uh, uh, anime as well, like Attack on Titan, uh, My Hero Academia, Ghost in the Shell, Arise, uh, you've also made an appearance on Red vs. Blue, uh, just to name a few, actually. Now, oh, you know what? Now that I think about it, Overlord. I mean, that one's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. 
And mm -hmm. I assume you're still dubbing that right now? Mm-hmm. Indeed. How does that work, though? When, when something's already started, you have to do go ahead and, and do the rest of the So, for example, so season two's already, I believe it's a done airing or still going. I can't remember. Um, there's just so many shows come and go, but how does that work? Do they bring you in to do the entire season or just come in, you know, every week to do an episode? Uh, well, actually, things have changed quite a bit um, at Funimation as uh, simul dubbing has mm -hmm. become uh, way more prevalent and popular. It used to be, um, to my understanding, that basically um, Funimation, that whatever company in the U.S. is dubbing, uh, you know, the Japanese anime, mm -hmm. uh, they would get the rights to distribute in America after the show had fully aired in Japan. And so we would get, you know, whatever, you know, this Overlord, Overlord season two, mm -hmm. we would get it in its entirety and we would uh, dub it in one fell swoop and then, you know, release it on the website or release it in DVD format. Right. But simuldubs has kind of changed everything uh, because basically now we're getting the rights to a particular episode of an anime just days after it's aired in Japan, mm -hmm. you know, so the turnaround is now anywhere between a week and two weeks for a simul dub show. So yeah, it's completely, and, and, and it is becoming more and more popular. More and more shows are being uh, done in the simul dub style, as opposed to the, you know, kind of uh, larger full season release. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's just kind of changed the way that we do things because you don't go in and dub, you know, an entire season in two days mm -hmm. anymore. It's now much more spread out. Right, especially with like a 12-episode uh, series. I mean, that's going to be quite a few days out of your time to do those. Mm -hmm. Now, is it a lot harder to do these uh, simultaneous, you know, dubbing compared to, you know, we're going to take care of this in just a matter of a mere days and then just release it all at once. Uh, you know, I think it just kind of depends on the actor. Mm. Um, I mean, to be perfectly honest as an actor, um, I kind of preferred the old way of doing things because it allowed you to get kind of like into the rhythm of your character and then like stay there for a mm. couple of hours. Um, you know, so it was like, I felt like I kind of like, uh, was able to like, reach a depth in the character very quickly and then sustain it. Um, but I think, you know, for fans and, you know, the people who watch the anime, I think the cyborg dub is definitely probably preferred because it makes it so you don't have to wait so long. Right. There's the, the dubbed version. Right. Know? There, there's a good and there's a bad on each part. And I can, yeah. I can understand how each one, especially when you're having to start on a project you're doing a little bit of it, then you got to stop, come back to it the following week, do it a little bit more, and then so you know it takes. A, it seems like it would it would take a little bit more time to get into the rhythm compared to, you know, doing it all at once. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So now was Attack on Titan your very first anime voiceover? It was. It was. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty big one to start off with, too. It is. I am so glad I did not quite realize at the time. Again, like, I mean, I knew it was a big anime on some level, but um, especially it being my first, 
I'm really glad that I didn't realize like the scope of Attack on Titan's popularity, like when I first started recording. Yeah. Um, or I would have been even more freaked out than I was. <laughs> this is all coming back to like how it was with uh, Breath of the Wild a little bit. Oh yeah, it was very nerve wracking. Yeah. You know, I'd never done dubbing before. It was an entirely new experience, and was it? You know, yeah. I was working with Mike McFarland, who yeah. you know I knew was very prestigious in the VO world and mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean he was lovely he was uh you know very very reassuring um was it but e- yeah was it easier to do an anime compared to a video game uh you know it really just depends um you know I do think that dubbing in general is harder Um, Because it kind of requires you to utilize both sides of your brain. Mm -hmm. So you're not just using the creative side. You're also having to use the analytical side. Because while you're trying to, you know, kind of maintain a character perspective and a character voice, um, you know, and figure out how you're going to emotionally deliver these lines, you're also having to be like, okay, so I have about 10 seconds to say that line. And then I've got to take a one second break. And then I have five seconds. You know, it's like you're... It's like doing art and math mm-hmm. at the same time. So, so yeah, I would definitely say I think that on some level dubbing is more difficult. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more. I would just, you've got mouth movements and whatnot still going on. So I can see how that would be a little bit more work. Yes. Yeah. A lot more technical aspects. Yeah, with a video game, it's, you know, it's, there's not as much. I mean, it's getting to the point where video games are starting to become more like a, you're watching than playing, but mm-hmm. you're still having that, you know, you're still doing some sec- you know, sections, but not, nothing compared to dubbing a series. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, especially with the performance capture that's becoming more popular mm-hmm. in, you know, the, the bigger title video games. It's yeah. the experience of working on them. It's almost like working on a movie Interesting. at this point. You know, it's like you do table reads, you read through the script. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you fully act things out in a performance capture volume. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, video video games on, you know, kind of more the AAA level are becoming more and more like feature films. It's yeah. kind of crazy. And with, your, and with your field, I mean, you've worked on different, you know, outside of video games and anime. You've done, you know, live action uh, uh, filming as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think having that kind of experience, I, it seems like that actually kind of benefits, you know, with your dubbing as well. Yeah, it definitely does. It all feeds into each other for sure. Yeah. Now, let's see. So, you've always enjoyed anime growing up, I take it? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. as a, almost like a hobby, I'd assume. So, you always were on top of it, uh, whatever was coming up or what was new. Well, not to like date myself, but, um, (laughs) or age myself, I guess is the term. But, um, I mean, when I was growing up, like there was no Funimation website that you could just hop on and, Mm -hmm. or maybe there was, and I just didn't know about it, but like, or they just weren't up to the point where you could actually use them properly. Right. Or I mean, it's just streaming, streaming services were not what they used to be. So, you know, my, my experience with anime, all the way up until like college was kind of more 
like my brother was part of the anime club in his high school. Mm-hmm. And so he would get these VHS tapes of like full seasons of certain animes and he'd bring them home mm-hmm. and he'd let me watch them. And that was kind of like, you know, I didn't get to necessarily like choose what I was going to watch per se. I was a bit at the mercy of whatever my brother brought home. But <laughs> thankfully, my brother has fantastic taste in anime. Oh. So I got exposed to some really great animes early on. What kind of <laughs> what kind of what kind of series were those? Well, the very first anime that I ever saw was the original Ghost in the Shell movie, Holy which crap. was, you know, yeah, yes, right? That was <laughs> like, that was the same for me, I kid you not. My brother and I, my older brother and I, he got, when he turned to an age, I think it was 18, we went to the video store and we rented, uh, one of them was uh, Ghost of the Shell. And we took that home, that was VHS, and then we watched it. And after yep. that, I was like, okay, I'm hooked now. So, I mean, I will admit, I didn't, like, I was kind of young to be watching it. I think I was like 10 or 11, so mm-hmm. a lot of it went over my head, <laughs> but it still yeah. left a very strong impression. It was, though, like... It was I, I the you know visually it was great but the story I was confused as hell but <laughs> I I mean I still I st- obviously I still watch it today so I mean it, it must have not really entirely broke at least at least break me apart but aside from Ghost in the Shell what other ones have you uh, were end up watching um, two of the other really big ones for me growing up that um, I watched over and over again um, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Mm-hmm was huge one um and escaflone yeah okay i don't know if you've if you've seen oh, yeah. either of those two um, I, 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 and they both yep. still hold up for me um i think that they're classics i love those shows yeah no um, those are definitely I also classics watched a bit of um i always for some reason forget if it's I feel like the anime is called Golden Boy, uh, but for some reason, <laughs> I always want to call it Paper Boy, which, right. I mean, oh. I think makes sense. Um, but yeah, yes. I watched a lot of Golden Boy in high school. <laughs> yes. I, you are the second person I've talked to in the voice, voice acting industry that has watched Golden Boy. And I don't know if you agree to it or not, though, but the dubbing for that was actually done very well. I yes, especially for that time. Yes. Ex- oh, yeah. Like, I think at the point where, like, um, I later down, let's say, I don't say a few years ago, I ended up getting into an anime group around the area. And one of the things we talked about was Golden Boy and how, kid you not, like, the dub was actually better than the Japanese um, <laughs> voice acting. And it's never heard of, but he did a fantastic job with that. And he really did. It was, it's one of those things where I remember we, my younger brother, we, this is when we got in, you know, after going to, you know, Ghost in the Shell, we watched a few other stuff, uh, series, and we, we, we ordered Golden Boy. We got the first tape, and we watched it. And my mom found out, and she saw the cover, and she's like, no. And so she put it away, <laughs> and we didn't get it back until my dad actually says, here you go. So if he's listening, if my parents are listening to this, <laughs> they're, they're probably going to have a talk, I guess. But um, <laughs> they, um, but uh, you know, after you know, after we only, but it was so aggravating because we could only we only saw that one VHS tape, so we didn't see. I didn't get to see the rest of them until years later, and man, was I oh, missing wow. out. But voice acting, I mean, 
back then, like, and that's what I was going to get to. My next question was just that, or at least the next topic was just the voice acting back then was a, a hit and miss, but mostly a miss. And I mean, back then, like nobody didn't take anime seriously back then until now. Mm-hmm. And the ones that actually did a great job are the ones that, you know, we still remember. Golden Boy was one of them. Uh, I still remember like Cowboy Bebop was a good one. Mm-hmm. Trigun did a good job as well. Um, I was really into Gundam Wing for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am a huge Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball Super fan. So I'm really big into those. I know those are a lot of hit and misses with a lot of people, but I grew up with that for years and years and years and still do. But um, So that one's really close to me in, on growing up with that. But there's just so many. There was there was a really good handful of uh, series back then that were just you know fantastic to watch. Uh, even like Rama One Half was good. Um, up to a certain point, I think I, I personally just um, it felt like it started getting a little bit more of a chore to watch it. Um, I believe the art direction how they were going with that um, was entirely different than what the the original art uh, artist wanted to do with it. So the studio wanted mm-hmm. to do it more of a slapstick comedy, and that's how it kept going for the rest of the you know for the rest of the seasons and it it did get more of a you know redundant for a while so i don't know if you remember watching rama one half growing up or or whatnot but there's been a few anime series that actually just kind of would take forever on what they were doing i mean inuyasha is another good example i have not actually seen that one it was a good series it's just you know how you know how long you know how long you're going to keep this up and then when they mm-hmm. find so when they finally stopped and then they finally said years later okay you know we're going to wrap it up so they actually came back made it like a short I'm not sure if it was 26 episodes or tw- I think it was 26 episodes they they wrapped it all together and they actually ended it on a good note so but it was like over 100 episodes of just you know the same thing over and over again you could actually just watch bits and pieces stop fast forward another 20 episodes and then watch three more and then you know those were kind of uh, kind of annoying, but they were, but it was still a pretty good series. Uh, so aside from those, were there any other anime shows that you've always enjoyed watching growing up? Um, I mean, I think I kind of, yeah, I already told you about the ones that were nearest and dearest to my heart. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go back and watch the the shows that you dubbed for? Um, I do sometimes. It's one of the funny paradoxes of this job is Mm -hmm. it's like the more that I do VO for a living, the less time I have to like watch anime and play video games for fun. Yeah. Um, so usually a lot of the time, whenever I have the chance, I prefer to watch the animes that I'm going to be acting in or dubbing, Mm -hmm. or I prefer to watch them subbed first so that I get, like, a good idea of, like, the character arc and the overall, like, arc of the season, you know, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, because I have already watched the season subbed, I don't necessarily go back and watch too much of it dubbed. Um, I mean, I do try and, like, kind of check in on it a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, but definitely usually not the whole season. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, being able to go back, you know, do you ever go back when you do watch them is, you know, how did you do? Did it sound like you could have done it uh, a little differently? Maybe if I, 
I mean, hey, I did a great job with that. I should keep that up. You know, do you ever have those, you know, thoughts coming through, you know, as you start watching these? For sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I try not to, uh, to focus too much on the like, oh, that didn't sound so good. <laughs> um, but, you know, sometimes it is nice, like, uh, going back and listening to, like, especially, like, um, volume two or season two of Attack on Titan, um, you know, like a lot of the really intense scenes that I had with um, uh, Bryn April's, uh, you know, Krista slash Historia. Um, it's really nice to go back and listen to those because the show is so good that mm-hmm. I a lot of times am able to like actually get lost in the story to the point where I can kind of forget that I am hearing my own voice. <laughs> and um, that's that's. That's a nice experience. Yeah. <laughs> so when you can get sucked into the story enough that you aren't like, "Ooh, that didn't sound good." <laughs> um, you've worked so it, it sounds like you work with a lot of different writers and um, a lot of a lot of different talents for each different you know project. You know, mm-hmm. I guess has there? I mean, I assume you're going to run into the same you know writer you know director and whatnot multiple times um i assume in the same company but you know cross you know let's say you different companies like square you know funimation and whatnot do they ever cross paths like in between like an anime and a video game like you'll meet the same people um it's pretty rare Mm -hmm. um yeah, I mean, and, and unfortunately, it is fairly rare for us as voice actors to get to uh, be in contact with the writers. Um, like I would say on Gearbox's Battleborn, that was actually a pretty unusual experience to have the writer there. Mm-hmm. Um, usually that is not the case. Um, with anime, absolutely, I run into the same people quite a bit. Um, but, you know, in video games... I guess it just kind of depends. You know, a lot of times um, companies, if if they like working with a particular director, they will hire them multiple times. Um, Or, you know, if you work with a director that you get along with and have a good, you know, creative relationship with, a lot of times they'll bring you in on multiple projects for multiple clients. Um, You know, there is definitely an element of like, you create, uh, you know, professional relationships and friendships and, uh, you know, a lot of people just do tend to work better with or prefer working with people that they have, you know, some yeah. sort of rapport with already. When you kind of build a network for, you know, working with a lot of different talents out there. And I assume mm-hmm. like by doing that, it actually does help you uh, bring in more projects to, to get on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to go back in time on this one. Um, so you went and got a BFA in theater through Chapman University. Mm-hmm. Now, has that how like what did you take out of that going into you know where you're at today? Um, well, <laughs> I think the number one thing that I took away from it is that uh, I'm glad I went to college so that I didn't immediately move to LA because <laughs> I do think that um, you know having that cushion in college. Uh, prepared me to um, be more successful when I moved to LA in my early 20s as opposed to at the you know tender age of 18 mm-hmm. but um, 
you know, we, a lot of us voice actors talk about this a lot at conventions when people, you know, ask us like, oh, I want to be a voice actor. How do I get into it? You know, how do I get started? And uh, one of the first things people always say is that it's called voice acting for a reason. And that, you know, uh, you know, having uh, an array of funny, weird, wacky voices or being able to do an impersonation is great. But the acting is at the core of it all. And so, I mean, being able to spend four years of doing nothing but studying different styles and techniques of acting in college was, I mean, absolutely invaluable. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of work with um, what's called the Alexander Technique, uh, which kind of is about freeing your voice. Oh. Um, it, it, it is kind of getting in touch with your body um, and aligning your body in a way that it allows your true voice to come out of it. Because a lot of us don't realize that, you know, whether it's because of societal pressures or expectations or tension that you hold in your throat or in your body, um, many of us don't speak in our true voice. Mm -hmm. And I discovered in college that I definitely was pitching my voice higher than is, is actually natural for me. Um, so, you know, a lot of people know me as being kind of like, uh, you know, more a lower voiced, you know, badass warrior, sexy kind of character. Mm -hmm. um, and that is absolutely, that voice is thanks to training um, at Chapman University because it definitely opened my eyes to realizing that I was um, unconsciously pitching my voice up which yeah. is pretty common for females in our culture. Okay. And, that, and just hearing that about this uh, technique, it kind of reminds me of like martial arts in a certain way. So it's interesting mm -hmm. to see how, you know, being able to figure out how to voice where you're comfortable with and then utilizing it, you know, with your career is actually, you know, actually makes you know quite a bit of sense to, to enjoy what you're doing, I assume. Mm-hmm. Now, let's see. So, you've wanted to be an uh, an actor at a young age. So, can you try, you know, what kind of performances did you end up doing growing up to get you started to getting to acting? Huh. Well, <laughs> I grew up in a sp pretty small town mm -hmm. and, and there weren't a lot of uh, outlets for for actors per se. We didn't really have um, a huge like community theater program. So um, I ended up creating a lot of home videos with my with my family and friends, <laughs> <laughs> which I one day hope to be able to track down because they're pretty priceless. Yeah. Um, and then I also actually got really involved in ballet because it's one of the only ways for me to get up on stage and perform hmm. um, when I was younger. Uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't have much of a theater program, but strangely enough, um, we had like a professional ballet dancer who retired to our town, and she started this really amazing professional, suddenly professional ballet company. So, you know, I got to do story ballets growing up. Like, you know, we did Cinderella, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Giselle, Nutcracker, all of those. 
And so that was kind of, I actually started out as a dancer because it was the only way that I could act in front of an audience Yeah. as, as a teenager and, you know, growing up. And that helped you out, you know, with voice acting to get comfortable with, you know, using your talents in front of others and not to be, mm-hmm. you know, start to, you know, I want to say scared or just, uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. Being, being comfortable, being yeah. seen while yeah. performing. Yeah. Now, what kind of advice would you give for someone who's interested in becoming an actor? Um, oh goodness. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, I always believe in, in utilizing whatever kind of tools that you have available where you live first, mm-hmm. um, you know, be that community theater, be that an acting class at a community college, uh, an improv class. Um, anything like that. And I think that most people can tell pretty quickly whether it's like, oh, well, this is fun. This is something I'm going to pursue as a hobby, you know, in my spare time versus like, oh, I have like the burning desire, you know, to do this, you know, with my life. Mm-hmm. In which case, then, you know, you can think about moving to a larger market. Um, but Yeah. I mean, I think really giving yourself the room to kind of like explore your connection with and your passion with acting Mm -hmm. first is crucial without there being too much pressure on, you know, is is this going to be my career? Is this, you know, going to make me money? You know, you got to get in touch with the art before you start thinking of the career aspect of it. Right. Now, would you say at least learning some of the business aspect, like, you know, how to manage your money and whatnot would be a pretty, you know, a, a good thing to know. I mean, obviously not going to a business school, but, you know, being able to figure out how to utilize your money would be good to have it in the back pocket. Oh, yeah. I mean, my career totally transformed when I kind of started getting training mm-hmm. in, um, in like how to market, you know, how to utilize like marketing techniques, like as an actor for your career and for your art. Um, I mean, that is so important and it's such an overlooked part of the realities of making a career out of acting. Yeah. Um, so for sure, I just don't usually encourage people to start there is all. (laughs) Right. Do what you like, build on, you know, build upon it. And then before you get too ahead of yourself, you know, manage your money pretty, you know, you know, logic, logical, you know, use your money wisely. Yeah, spend it all at once, but it seems like that's a kind of common thing for everyone to kind of know because you can really fall into a lot of traps by not managing very well. I I think so. Yeah. Now, you've done traditional acting, voiceovers, and even motion capture. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I've never heard it. Like, what is motion capture like? Um, motion capture is basically where you wear this kind of very tight, silly looking black suit, kind of looks like a scuba diver outfit. Um, they attach you with all of these, um, sensors Mm -hmm. and you step into a, what's called a volume, which is kind of like a big blank space that is, uh, uh, flanked by all of these cameras that are, you know, capturing and recording the sensors on your body. And 
you move and it basically creates a skeleton for the animators to then lay a character onto. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I I've never really talked to one, you know, anybody who's actually done this before. So it's actually interesting, you know, what would you say uh what did you like about doing motion capture, you know, motion capture? Um well, it just kind of like it's a a melding of you know, a lot of different parts of, of the art, you know, it's like you get to, you know, so often in voiceover, we are limited to only being able to use our voice, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, its own beautiful little complicated, you know, process in and of itself. But, you know, being able to add in that extra layer of, of bringing the character to life through the way that you move, um, is just, you know, another added layer that's really fun. And, uh, <laughs> there's usually, usually a lot of goofing around on motion <laughs> capture sets as well, because when you've got like a weird little animated character of yourself on a screen, it's hard, hard not to make it do funny things. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a dancing skeleton going on. It's like those like mm-hmm. really old, you know, old school Disney cartoons. So those, you know, skeletons dancing to the music. Now, um, what did you like about uh, traditional acting? Um, you mean like on camera? Yeah. Um, I mean, kind of like I said, it's just its own. I mean, I love them both. I would never want to have to choose between doing on camera and voiceover. Mm-hmm. Um, they just present their own unique challenges and unique, you know, rewards. Um, there's different, you know, techniques and methods that I employ depending on what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there is something kind of cool about, you know, actually knowing that like, you know, what you're doing is being recorded, how you're moving the slightest, Mm -hmm. you know, twitch in your face or, you know, twitch of your fingers is being captured and, and adds to the story. Mm -hmm. So I mean, there's definitely a, a different nuance of performance there that's really fun to play with. It seems like with, um, you know, when you mentioned earlier about um, ballet, it seems like that came in a lot to an effect of that experience for, you know, you know, on-camera acting and motion capture. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I wrong? It definitely or? helped. Okay. Absolutely. Now, voiceovers, I mean, that's an entirely different thing. What did you like about doing voiceovers? Um, well, uh, I mean, like I said, it does kind of, it presents its own challenge because you have to convey everything I just talked about Mm -hmm. with your voice alone. Um, but one of the coolest things about voiceover for me is the freedom that it gives you and the type of character that you can play. Um, you know, you aren't limited to what you look like, what your physical body is, you know, you can play any age, any, uh, you know, any gender, you know, it's very common for you know, male voice actors to play females and female voice actors to play males. You can, you can voice an animal, you can voice an alien, a monster. No, you know, it's like the sky is the limit. <laughs> now I have to ask you is what voices did you voice as a male character then? Um, let's see. I haven't done as many males as some other female VO mm-hmm. um, people that I know. Um, 
I'm trying to think if there are any major male characters. I think all of like my well-known roles are all female, Mm -hmm. but I've definitely gotten to play like younger boys in anime. Typically I was not the main character, but just kind of like filling in on like supporting roles or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, here and there. Yeah. Um, you know, but there are definitely like female VAs who are really well known for voicing male characters like, you know, Colleen Clinkenbeard, who, you know, does Luffy in One Piece. Yeah. Um, or Brina Palencia, you know, in Black Butler. Okay. So. Interesting. Now, there was a post-apocalypse gravel novel that apparently you were the inspiration of a heroine. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. And sorry, Seth, just to let you know, I do need to kind of start wrapping things up. I uh, guess um, this is the, actually the last question. And okay, then perfect. I wanted to do is uh, after this one, I was hoping we can get a a opening section and then a bumper and then that's it. Is that possible? Yeah, sure. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to repeat that question one more time. So sure. you were an inspiration for a heroine in a post-apocalypse uh, graphic novel. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, one of my best friends uh, is this incredibly talented photographer named Joseph Corsentino, and um, he's also a Photoshop wizard, and he's one of those people who can create entire universes in his mind. Um, His genius is just kind of insane. And we met when I was, I want to say 20, Um, and struck up a friendship and I started modeling for him. He does a lot of, uh, fantasy photography. Um, you know, so he, you know, does, uh, photo shoots of like fairies and vampires and angels and through, uh, you know, stories that he'd already kind of come up with in his head and characters that we slowly started working on together. Uh, we came up with the storyline, um, for a story called Afterlight, which basically kind of, takes a mythology that he created and uh, throws it into a post-apocalyptic world. And I play um, a character named Hallion, who is an angel, and uh, she basically is kind of trying to protect the last vestiges of humanity from the rest of the angel population, who, oh. um, I mean, it, it's very... Uh, the storyline is very complex. It would take me a while to go into it, but basically humans create a life force called Kai and, um, angels kind of feed off of that life force. And, uh, it was a very symbiotic relationship to start Mm -hmm. and then things kind of go awry and, uh, that's where the events of the graphic novel take place. Um, but yeah, that that was an incredible project to be a part of. Um, I've never really heard of anybody doing a photography-based graphic novel before, and no. I was so proud of the way it turned out. That's interesting, um, though. I mean, I've yeah. never heard of it until now, so I, that's something I I had to pick your brain about to know a little bit, just at least to get a little know more a little about that. Well, Elizabeth, I appreciate you coming out and doing a podcast with us. Where can everyone find you? 
Oh, gosh. Um, you can check out my website if you'd like. It's uh, www.aboutelizabethmaxwell.com. And on social medias, um, I recommend finding me on Twitter at aboutelizabethm or Instagram. And there I'm just uh, at Elizabeth Maxwell. I guess I must have been the first one, Elizabeth Maxwell to join Instagram. <laughs> there we go. And you can find Cat with Monaco at catwithmonaco.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, Instagram, all those uh, fancy social media channels that we all love to use at Cat with Monocle. Elizabeth, I appreciate you coming out for this podcast recording. You are so welcome. It was a pleasure. Awesome.